We're in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. We're talking about the promise of the Father. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. And specifically, we're talking about a spirit-filled life and what that, what that means, what that looks like, what that is. Y'all are wondering if I'm going to get to Acts chapter 5, right? That's the one where God kills those two people that lied to him. <laughs> we won't talk about that today, okay? Let me read to you what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Jesus said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Luke reaffirms that in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, when he recounts in his um, in his. Um, account here called the Acts of the Apostles. Luke wrote this, and he recounts Jesus' words uh, here in in the book of Acts in chapter 1, verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And in in verse 8, Jesus goes on and he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, the Spirit of God is poured out in fulfillment of what the prophet Joel wrote in Joel chapter 2. And God poured his Spirit out on all flesh. That does not mean that God poured his Spirit out on every single human being on planet Earth. What it does mean is God poured his Spirit out on all flesh, irregardless of whether you were born of the right tribe of the sons of Jacob whether you were a king or a priest, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, when the Bible says God will pour his spirit out on all flesh, that's what that means. It doesn't mean he poured it out on all the animals and all the people, every single one on planet earth. It means that God abolished the walls of demarcation, the walls of separation, He abolished those. Now, whether you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, rich or poor, it doesn't matter. God will pour his spirit out on all flesh, and he did that. And we see recorded throughout the book of Acts, it started in Jerusalem, it went to Samaria, it went to Judea, and it went to the other parts of the earth. It started by being poured out on the Jews. It was poured out on the Samaritans. Acts chapter 10, it was poured out on the Gentiles. And then 20 years later, we see disciples in what would be present-day Turkey receiving the Holy Spirit. The Gentile church had gone to the ends of the earth, had gone beyond the borders of Israel. And so we are that church today. That same Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost has been poured out in our hearts today by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 4, we see Peter and John going up to the temple. They, they uh, see the guy begging alms. He's healed. He's leaping and praising God and causes a big stir. They're arrested, commanded not to preach Jesus. They come back having been commanded not to preach Jesus, having been threatened, and they're rejoicing. 
and, and, and they quote the psalm, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot vain things? Uh, for against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. It's what God the Father purposed to be done. The crucifixion of his son. The murder of his son was purposed by the Father. That's hard for us to understand. But that's what the Bible teaches us. And they prayed... Acts chapter 4, verse 31, and it says, And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And we looked at these five things uh, last week. And what was the result of them being filled with the Spirit? Boldness. They spoke the word with boldness. Unity. They were all of one heart and one soul. Great power. It says great power was upon them to be witnesses to Jesus and the resurrection. It says great grace was upon them all. And provision or generosity defined who they were. They sold their possessions. They brought all they had. And, and any as has need, they shared with them. That's not advocating communism. That's just saying that we are one and we, we help one another. We love one another. I see my brother and he needs food and he needs clothing. Am I going to withhold that? Not if I love him. Not if I count him my brother. I won't. And so we see these things that marked the spirit-filled church. And so I want to go a little bit farther and talk about this reality of a spirit-filled life. The Holy Spirit is the power to be witnesses to Christ. It is the power to show and to tell. So we need to do more than just tell about Jesus. We need, we need to show. We must show Jesus as the expression of our life, both in word and in deed. So our witness is not just our ability to recite facts about Jesus or uh, facts that we've learned about the Bible, but it's, our, it's in our obedience to make known the Jesus that we have come to know and experience as our life. You must come to know and you must come to experience Jesus as your life. Not just someone you're hoping will get you to heaven one day, but you need to know that Jesus is your life. And so our ability to win a Bible trivia contest does not necessarily make us a good witness. But if Christ is our life, then it is the life of Christ that we are to show. So we take this little one. And we look at all of our little ones. And what do we want? from our little ones as parents, as we trust Jesus, what do we want our children to be and to demonstrate? We want them to grow up and we want them throughout their lives to demonstrate that Jesus is their life. That they don't come to a point in time when they're old enough to logically figure out whether they should really believe in Jesus or not and then make a decision to do that. No, from the time they are 
before they're born, from the time we know they've been conceived in our womb, it should be our prayer. It should be our earnest desire. It should be what we are working and striving and praying toward that our children will come out of the womb. They will grow up. They will begin to walk. They will begin to talk. They will begin to, to live and they will demonstrate through their lives that they are trusting Jesus because they have learned for all of their lives that Jesus is their life and they have no life apart from Jesus. That's what it means to raise up your child in the fear and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That doesn't mean send your kids to church while you stay home and do whatever. That doesn't mean drop your kids off and make sure or put them in a Christian school and hope your Christian teachers are teaching them the Bible. No, what the Proverbs commands us to do and promises to us is that we are to be about this. This is why we charge parents. But ultimately, parents, it's not your responsibility to save your children. Only God can do that. It is your responsibility to raise your children. And we should raise our children in faith, trusting what God's word has declared to us. But remember, we need to be examples to our children. So our children aren't going to learn because we say so. They're going to learn because we do so. Because if we say one thing and do another, they're going to they're follow your example more than they will follow your words. That is the truth. That is how life works. But by the grace of God. If we don't follow our parents' examples in bad ways, it was because of the grace of God. If we follow our parents' example in godly ways, guess what? It's because of the grace of God. <laughs> so it's all by the grace of God. So believers, our witness is given in the love, the boldness, the unity, the power, the grace, and the generosity we demonstrate through our lives as followers of Jesus filled with his Holy Spirit. This is how we are to live, to walk out our faith every day. The believer we, the believers that we see in the book of Acts live their lives to Christ because they came to truly know and experience Jesus as their life. They weren't just trying to avoid hell. A lot of Christians are going through life just trying to avoid hell. That's not what we're called to. That's not the point. If we miss the joy of Jesus, if we miss the fulfillment and the satisfaction of the Father of all mercies, if we miss that, and all we simply do is try to go through life to make sure we avoid hell, we've, we've missed the whole reason as to why Jesus came to this earth. He didn't just come to earth so we could miss hell. He came to earth so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. What does that mean? The abundant life is a life filled with his abundant joy, filled with his abundant love, filled with his abundant peace. That's what you should be experiencing in Jesus. This is what the spirit-filled life is about. It's not whether we come in here on Sunday morning. Let me just back up about 20 years. If we back up 20 years and we're in Christ Fellowship Church 20 years ago on a Sunday, we might hope 
that if so-and-so, sister so-and-so gets up and gives a word in tongues, and then brother so-and-so gets up and gives an interpretation in tongues, then we say we've had a spirit-filled service. Then we all leave, and everybody's gossiping and backbiting and, and, and hating one another, but bless God, we had a spirit-filled service because the spirit moved. Really? No, I don't think so. But yet, we laugh, but I'm telling you, there, this is how we sometimes define these things. But the Bible, this is why it's so important that we go back to the scripture. Listen, if we have sacred cows that need to be sacrificed, let's sacrifice them. Let's just kill them right now. Let's go back to the scripture and let's let the scripture define for us. What, how does the scripture define a spirit-filled life? And that's what, that's what we want to talk about. That's what we want to understand And that begins with you and I understanding Christ is our life. And out of the revelation and that reality of Christ as our life, we experience Jesus as the full expression of God's grace and love and peace and joy and and even more. And we come to know Jesus as our all in all. He's the fullness of who fills all in all, Paul writes. And that's why when we read in Acts, we read about a church and we see an example of a church that joyfully lived their lives to make his glory known. And this is the same joy that's given to us in Christ. We have been given the privilege to live our lives joyfully and make his glory known. So we show forth the life of Christ as living letters, living epistles for the world to read and hear of Christ. Paul writes this very thing in his uh, letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. You are our epistle. The word epistle just means letter. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are a letter of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. This is the power of the Spirit. It is the power to transform us, to renew our mind, and to utterly conform us to the very image of the Son of God. This is the power of the Spirit. And this is the power that must not be something we only speak of, or we only read of, or we only recall, but it must become the reality we walk out and demonstrate through the entirety of our life. Not just on Sunday morning. Not just on Sunday afternoon, it's the Sabbath after all, but on Monday morning, on Thursday morning, at our workplace, at our shopping place, at our recreation place, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, this is the reality that we are showing forth as we are living epistles being read by all men. So Christ's fellowship must not be known as a spirit-filled church based on a label or a category or a past tradition. But 
we must be known as a spirit-filled church based on how we are walking out our faith, ruled and governed by the Holy Spirit, based on how we are giving witness to Christ through our daily life, through our daily life. So I want you to stop and I want you to think about the people in your life that need Jesus and need, and need to be connected to his body, the church. Have you invited them? Have you offered to bring them? Have you showed them Jesus? How have we shown the world Jesus? How are we showing Jesus to the world around us? Now, I'm not saying you have to be obnoxious. That's not the point. But how do people see us? How do people perceive us? Do they wonder how we're loving? Do they wonder how we're patient? Listen, I'm not always loving and I'm not always patient. I, I confessed that sin to you a couple of weeks ago, right? When we fail, con- I don't know about you, I'm, gonna say, I'm not going to say we, I'm going to say I. I fail constantly, and that's the truth. Some of you only see me a couple of hours on a Sunday. Others of you see me lots more than that. And those of you who see me lots more than that know that I fail constantly. It's not about you not failing. But what's our attitude when we do fail? Are we trying to justify our failure? Are we just ready to say, I'm so sorry. I I need the grace of God. Pray for me. I'm sorry I lost my temper. I'm sorry I was impatient. I'm sorry that was not very kind. You're a pastor, man. I can't believe you did that. You're right. I am a pastor, and you should hold me to a higher standard. I'm sorry I failed. Please forgive me. I mean, you know, why justify when we fail? Just own up to it. And trust the grace of God, because God is graceful. And you know what? Sometimes that's a greater witness for people than the fact that you seem to be a person who has it all perfectly together all the time. That's kind of what we want. You know, we want to be this person who appears to have it perfectly all together all the time. And, you know, I think people like that, uh, it's kind of like when I was in high school, you know, uh, the girl who was the most beautiful, the most popular, seemed to have it all together. Man, I I wouldn't even say hi to her because I figured she wouldn't even give me the time of day. Then, you know, you go back to your 30-year class reunion, and you find out that she was so insecure and had all of these spots and wrinkles and flaws. And, and I'm like, man, if I'd have known that's who you were, we probably could have really, you know, got along great, you know. But instead, we feel compelled to hold up this facade and this image. But you know, sometimes if the world just sees that we're no different than them except for the grace of God. If I have anything together, it is by the grace of God. If I have achieved or attained to anything, it is by the grace of God. If I'm able to exhibit patience and love and kindness and the fruit of the Spirit, it is by the grace of God. And when I fail to exhibit that, it is by the grace of God that I will go forward. And I'm okay. And I know there is therefore now no condemnation for me in Christ because I'm trusting in the grace of God. 
So this is the power of the Spirit. It's the power to transform us. It's the power to renew our mind, to conform us to Christ utterly. It's the power of the Spirit that enables us to exhibit and display the life of Christ. So being a witness to Christ implies intentionality. I must intentionally do something. I'm not a witness for Christ by accident. It speaks of something that's intentional. It also implies responsibility and accountability. We're responsible and accountable to the Lord. He commands us to intentionally go and make disciples, but he does not command us to go without joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength as we are intentionally giving witness and as we intentionally go and make disciples. Parents, the first place you should go to make a disciple is to your children. And teach those children as they grow up and trust in the grace of God, not in your perfection. So we come back to this question of obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. And he has commanded us to love one another. John 15, 12. And he says this in John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And in John 13, 34, Jesus gives a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Even so, you are to love one another. So love sent Christ from heaven to earth to give his life for us. And our love for him which implies our love for one another, because John is real clear in his first letter, don't say you love God but hate your brother because the love of God's not in you. So if we confess that we love God, it is implied automatically that we love one another. So our love for him, and so therefore our love for one another, sends us to the world around us as a witness to make him known, to make disciples, and to teach them all that the Lord has commanded. This is the love of God. We don't do that out of obligation or fear. We should, and we must do this out of love. And if we love God, we will. And if we love one another, we will. And if we love those who do not have Jesus, then we will we will do this. And if we find it difficult to do this, and let's be honest, I'm not saying this is easy. I always tell people discipleship is not complicated. It's just really hard. This is not complicated, but I'm not saying it's easy. But this is why God's given us also the privilege of prayer. And by grace, we can come to the throne of grace and we can tell God, God, I'm having a hard time with this. I don't want to go. It's really inconvenient. I mean, let, you know, I really would rather just 
you know, sit here and veg all day and watch some good movie. But, but maybe that's not what I'm supposed to do all day. I don't know. You know, that guy at the office, I just don't, I don't like him, God. I don't like him. But I'm asking you, God, to give me the grace to pray for him and to be a witness to him. And I ask you, God, that you would, in your grace, cover my dislike of him, that he would not perceive my dislike, but he would perceive the love of Jesus in my heart. Don't pretend like you don't have issues. Just give them to God. He knows what your issues are. And ask him to help you with those. Ask him to help you to be a witness who finds joy in showing forth the life of Jesus. This is the commission Jesus commands each of us to obey. He gave us the Holy Spirit that we would have the love, the joy, the peace, and the power to be that witness, to persevere to the end for his glory. So the Holy Spirit is the power of God to be witnesses to him. But the Holy Spirit is also the promise of God, of our inheritance in Christ. It is the promise of power to persevere and to keep us a witness in Christ to the praise of his glory. We have obtained an inheritance in Christ and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that inheritance to the praise of his glory. Paul writes this in Ephesians 1, verse 11 through 14. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of of his glory. So we have an inheritance in Christ that is a promise guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit has sealed us by grace through faith. And the guarantee of all these promises is the very Spirit of God that has been gracefully poured out into our hearts. It is by his Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit seals us and is the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. So Paul writes in Romans eight fourteen through 17, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like that suffering part. But it's there. And we have to deal with it somehow. This is, this is part of Paul's prayer. It's part of the truth that the Spirit of God revealed to Paul. And so it's been revealed to us. And the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation, the seal of our inheritance in Christ, and the seal identifying us as children of God and joint heirs with Jesus. By his Spirit, God gives us the privilege to suffer with him that we may also 
be glorified together with him. I'm ready to get through the suffering part and get to the glory part, okay? I mean, that's the way we think, right? But the reality is we don't have a suffering part and a glory part. It's all together. We have the glory right now. It's just that sometimes suffering blinds us to the glory of God and all we can see and all we can perceive and all we can know is the suffering. But God, this is the power. Listen to me. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why God gave us his spirit so that in the midst of our suffering, we're not focused on our suffering. We are not blinded to his glory, but, but somehow by the power of God, by the supernatural grace and power of God, God is able to open our blind eyes and our hard hearts and our closed minds. And he is able to reveal his glory to us even in the midst of our suffering. And when we are struggling with seeing his glory in the midst of suffering, what does he do? He compels us to come boldly to the throne of grace with confidence and make our petition. Paul writes this in Philippians. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace of God, which passes understanding will guard your heart and guard your minds. Through Christ Jesus. Therefore, meditate on these things. Then he even tells us what to think on, what to think on so that our mind is renewed to those things and not to the hardship and the darkness of the suffering, but to the light and the weight of the glory that our suffering is producing in Christ. power of the spirit-filled life is the power to be a joy-filled witness in word and in deed. And it is the power that perseveres and carries us through to our inheritance to the praise of his glory. The power of the Holy Spirit is what we are to experience. It is what we are to know that we possess in Jesus The power of the Spirit should not just be something we read about in the Bible. It should not be something we recall from days past. It should be the abiding reality and experience of who we are right now in Christ. We are to live in obedience to His Spirit, not sparing the power He has filled us with as we walk surrendered to His will while giving witness to all who read our life. In Christ, we live in the power of the Spirit and we are to live Spirit-filled lives as we walk by faith. Jesus did not say we had to have all faith, but faith the size of a mustard seed. It is mustard seed faith that is your saving faith. You realize that? Jesus talks about moving a mountain. We want to think that's moving all kinds of situations and circumstances. Listen, the greatest mountain facing you was your sin and death and separation from God. And Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, you can move this mountain. Your mustard seed faith was the saving faith that brought you out of darkness into light, brought you out of death and into life. 
But that mustard seed faith is to grow. Remember the parable? That smallest of seeds grows and becomes a habitation, even for the birds, bringing shade to those things that live in the garden. So our mustard seed faith is to grow. And as it grows, so should our assurance in Christ and in the promises that we have by his spirit. So the power of the spirit is the power of a fruitful life. Galatians 5:22 lists the fruit of the spirit. And Paul says that if we walk uh, in the spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we're not to, to live carnal lives. What Caleb said is absolutely true. The opposite of, of spiritual is not physical. Jesus was a physical being. He was very spiritual and they could handle him. It's carnal. We're not to give place to the works of the flesh. If we walk according to the spirit, we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So what should we set our mind to? Not the works of the flesh, but the spirit. What happens when we focus on what's happening to our flesh? What happens when we focus on all this carnality? Pinch me and I'm going to hurt. Stick me and I'm going to bleed. And if I sit there and focus on that and pick at that, my wound will never heal because I'm focused on my carnality. God tells us in his word, focus on my spirit. Walk according to the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What we set our eyes upon is what we will be transformed into. So the scripture multiple times says, set your eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, looking into this mirror. What's in the mirror? The image of Jesus should be in the mirror. Looking into that very same image, we are being transformed. And so the fruit of the spirit is the manifestation of the life of the spirit in us. It is the measure of a truly spirit-filled life, a life filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Or as Jesus so simply and eloquently said, to love one another as I have loved you. There's not nine fruit. There's only one fruit of the spirit. And it's crowning, defining characteristic is love. It will also be seen in all those other characteristics like self-control. But to love God and to love your neighbor or to love one another as Jesus has loved us. For love is the measure of the spirit-filled life and it is the measure of our fruitfulness. So never look for ways to justify your doubts. Look to renew your mind in the truth through the word of God, to alleviate your doubts. Renewing your mind to the truth revealed in God's word and enlightened by his spirit will increase your capacity to live a spirit-filled life. A spirit-filled life is a fruitful life joyfully and willfully ruled and governed by the spirit of God. Remember, A spirit-filled life is not defined by how many gifts you can manifest. A spirit-filled life is defined by the fruit you manifest. If we live in the spirit and we do, and we do that in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are in the spirit, Romans 8, 9. And if we live in the spirit, then let us also walk in the spirit. Let us 
live lives filled and ruled and governed by the Spirit of God that indwells us and fills us in Christ. So Christian, rejoice. The promise of the Father in His grace is the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is the promise of power, the promise to be witnesses, the promise to persevere to our inheritance, and the promise of fruitfulness to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit seals us in His promise that He will present us faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. You are not going to be presented faultless because you've got it all figured out and you've eliminated all doubt from your life. You're going to be presented faultless by the grace of God. But as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, you should also grow in faith in assurance of what God has promised you in his word. Amen. Let us all stand. So I challenge you to walk in the fullness of his spirit and power to be obedient, to be fruit filled, to be intentional, to be a living letter for all men to see and all men to read and to be powerful in your witness to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would make us powerful, spirit-filled, fruit-filled witnesses. Give us the grace to live obedient and surrendered lives for your glory. Give us boldness to be witnesses to those you have placed in our lives. Whether, Lord, these are long-term relationships or very temporary relationships. And we pray that in your grace, you would give us your joy as we seek your glory. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. And all God's people said, amen.